you're listening to the Tongue Tie Experts Podcast, a weekly program providing information and support for those families impacted by tongue and lip tie and the professionals caring for them. I'm Lisa Palladino, a midwife and a lactation consultant with over 30 years of experience. If you are a parent looking for answers or a professional who is curious to learn more than what you learned in school on this topic, welcome. This podcast is for you. A gentle disclaimer, please do not consider anything discussed on this podcast by myself or any guest of the podcast to be medical advice. The information is provided for educational purposes only and does not take the place of your own medical or lactation provider. Thank you. So many babies with tongue ties. Do you wonder why? Do you ever have doubts about the number of procedures being done on newborns? As a midwife and a lactation consultant, I never want a baby to have an unnecessary procedure. I am passionate about sharing the tongue tie experts protocols for the holistic assessment and treatment of the breastfeeding dyad beyond the frenum. Whether you are a lactation consultant, speech language pathologist, body worker, MD, dentist, midwife, or doula, the professional's guide to tongue tie in the breastfeeding infant will increase your knowledge and confidence. You'll learn how to tell if oral restrictions are affecting breastfeeding. You'll understand your role on the tongue tie team and you'll gain a community for continued networking and learning. Students of the course tell me that they love feeling confident to educate and support their patients using the skills that the program gave them. Imagine knowing that you prevented arbitrary or ill-timed phrenotomy or were able to offer complete support before, during, and after necessary procedures. And guess what? It's time for our annual summer sale. The best time to sign up is now because it's half price. Lactation consultants, there are four LSERPs upon completion, and all participants get a badge for their website. The link to sign up is in the show notes, but you can go to www.tongtieexperts.net slash professional course to sign up today. Don't miss the half price sale. It won't last long. See you in the group. Again, that's www.tongtieexperts.net slash professional course. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. This is Lisa Palladino, and I am very excited today to be chatting with Robin Merkel Walsh. Um, Robin and I go back a while. We've been in this tongue tie space together, um, but let me introduce you to her. So you will be as excited as I am to meet Robin and hear what she has to say about tongue tie and the tongue tie team and the role of a speech language pathologist on the tongue tie team. Robin 
is a licensed speech pathologist and board certified oral facial myologist with over two decades of experience in the state of New Jersey. She is employed full-time by the Ridgefield Board of Education and is the owner of Diamond Mayo and Mouths in Motion Mentoring Service. She is a lecturer and author for Talk Tools and a Breathe Institute ambassador. Robin has been elected to New Jersey Kids Top Doctors in 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2018. Robin received both her undergraduate and graduate degrees from Montclair State University, where she was later invited to be an adjunct clinical supervisor. She also taught classes at Bergen Community College and is a former clinical site coordinator for Seton Hall University. She is the board chair of the Oral Motor Institute and a proud recipient of three ASHA ACE Awards and the Ridgefield Women of the Year 2019 in Business Award. Welcome, Robin. And um, I am exhausted just listening to all the things that <laughs> Because you know what, I don't know, you know, just to clarify for those who didn't catch that, you work full time in the school system, and have your own private practice, and you lecture and teach. Yes. Yeah. So how does Robin do all that? (laughs) I don't know how Robin does all of that. Um, I'm often asked that question. Um, I've always been a multitasker growing up. my parents were divorced. My mom was essentially a single mom. Um, and, you know, as a small child, I went from school to dancing school for like five hours and then did homework. I was very conscientious about, you know, my schoolwork and things like that. And then that rolled over into college and graduate school where I had to do college work study to get through college and work you know, bartending and at CVS and at the local clothing store. And then in summer, I would hold down three jobs, you know, to save money for books and spending money at school. So it just kind of rolled over into my professional life. I'm so used to it. Yeah, getting older. So um, within a few years, um, I'm almost at the both the number of year requirement I've met. Um, I'm going into my 28th year in the school. So we have to do 55. And 25, so 55 years old and 25 years in. So um, not to say too much about my age, but uh, as of September 2022, I'll have four years left. Okay, good for you. So in 2026, I'm hopeful that I'll be done. Um, I love this school, don't get me wrong, but um, I have a lot of other work to do, I think. So it'll open up my days and allow me to do more projects and and more private work and lecturing. Yes. You know, that's a great point that the school systems are a great entry level and you do great work in schools. And I know many SLPs who do work through the school systems um, and are a little bit frustrated about what you can't do in schools and what, what the mainstream model of what we learn in school, of what all of us in our different professions learn in school doesn't always uh, bring us to the place where we need to be to actually be able to help families beyond that basic knowledge. Yes. Right. So I turn that as an IBCLC, like one of my themes is we didn't learn this in school. So as we talk today, one of the, one of um, the topics that I want to cover, I want to answer the question for our audience and our listeners what role does an SLP play 
we know what role an IBCLC plays with tongue tie because to us that's obvious. Tongue tie is for babies. That's that's where you know breastfeeding babies, and that's where most of my audience so far has been introduced to the idea of tongue tie. But let's talk about the role of the SLP. Yes, and and it's a little broader. Um, and certainly more complex. I think that for IBCLCs, one of um, the many things that you have going for you as a profession is most of the research has focused on breastfeeding in TOTS. So for the SLP, we have many roles in dealing with tethered oral tissue, and the research is a little slower to catch up. So it's very controversial in my field. Um, Every take time we take two steps forward, someone comes in and says something to take 10 steps back. So for example, before I get into each specific area, um, one of the things that's been said a lot about tongue tie in my field is that you can compensate for it, right? And I'm sure there are professionals in your field as well that talk about, well, you could just compensate. Right. You know what? Can I just interrupt you for a minute? Because I bet that there are IBCLCs and other professionals listening who are like, what is Robin talking about that we have lots of research? Because for us, the same thing, we always, we feel like we're being knocked backwards because there's not enough level, quote unquote, level one, one, right, right. You know, and what we see doesn't matter, which is right. right? We could touch definitely upon the evidence because I work with that, but um, one of my biggest, um, fo- the, one of the biggest Facebook posts I ever made in my group on Facebook was just simply my office logo. And it said something to the effect of speech pathologists should be in the, in the business to remediate, not to compensate. You know, some patients can learn to compensate, but not all patients can. Um, and I got a lot of attention from Dr. Gahari on that one. He said, I'm going to steal this literally. Mm-hmm. So true, because we learn in our college and graduate school programs, right? Because to have be a speech pathologist, you have to have a master's degree. And it's not a regular master's degree where it's like 36 credits. It's pretty much double that. Some programs are even as far as 90 credits because of all the different courses that we need to take. Mm-hmm of speech pathology is so broad. um, You know, that is something right out of the gate that's a problem for speech therapists because they're learning in school, oh, you're going to hear about oral motor, you're going to hear about tongue tie. It's not evidence-based. And when kids have low tone or when kids have cleft palate or when kids have tongue tie, they can learn to compensate. Wow. And I'm from the school of thought that I want my patients and my students to really maximize um, and work with what they have and habilitate or rehabilitate because that's the message I got in school. I'm in a career to help people. And um, as talk tools would say, maximize um, the greatest potential. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, And, And the idea of compensation sounds like a negative to me. Yes. Right. And why should right. so people have 
you know, need a knee replacement. The PT doesn't teach them to compensate and walk with crutches for the rest of their lives. The crutches are there for a temporary period of time while they heal and they're doing strength and resistance training and working on range of motion and building. Because if you use crutches or you limped your whole life, you develop issues in your hip, in your back, maybe it would go into your neck you'd get atrophy of the muscles. So we don't want to do that for tongue tight either. Mm -hmm. I love the points that you're making. Um, And we do hear about compensation with breastfeeding as well. Those families that say, oh, my baby had a tongue tie, but he did just fine. And then it's, he did just fine until he didn't because those compensations often break down at different points. And sometimes they don't break down until they're at the stage that you would see the child. You know, maybe a school age child who's now having difficulty with speech or, you know, tell me what what the usual, the typical presentation is for your private. It There's manifestations across the lifespan, right? So when we talk about the SLP's role, um, there is many roles because tots can uh, impact oral resting posture. Um, and Ash's scope of practice for speech pathologists includes speech, it includes feeding, it includes orofacial myofunctional disorders. And under each one of those headings are different subheadings, right? So when Lori and I discuss in our course on TOTS and in our textbook on TOTS, when might we suspect that TOTS is a problem? Well, early on at birth, and this is what you're dealing a lot with, breastfeeding complications. And I do work with babies at times. I have a lot of pediatricians that will refer to me first, like, look at what's going on. Do a feeding assessment. Look at structure, function. Is there anything else going on, right? In my practice, just like you said, maybe there were compensations for breastfeeding, But here's a few scenarios. I'll get a mom who has been on maternity leave for three to six months and is ready to go back to work. They introduce a bottle. Baby can't bottle feed. Mm -hmm. To me, I don't know what to do. I need to get back. Baby only wants to breastfeed. Baby can't coordinate. They bring like a suitcase full of bottles and nipples, all kinds of supplemental systems. And dad's tried. My mom's tried. We've done this. We've done that. Well, baby's tongue-tied and the um, breast can conform to the oral cavity. The bottle teeth cannot. Right. It's up in my office because they can't transition from breast uh, to bottle. Then I get the the children that did fine with breast or bottle and purees, but they're gagging and vomiting and choking on solids. Mm -hmm. Or they're a toddler and no one can understand what they're saying or they have a drooling problem. Like this week, I just evaluated a patient. Chief complaint was drooling. The child had a myriad of tot signs and symptoms, including a self-limited diet. The pediatrician had told the mom, well, all kids at this age are picky eaters, which is not true. Um, The child not only was drooling, but had chronic congestion and airway obstruction. They had lip, cheek, and the two upper buckles um, Mm -hmm. restricted. 
He had multiple speech sound errors, even even though the parents didn't complain about his speech intelligibility. I see these kids in the school system, they're referred in first grade for a problem with S and they walk into my classroom. They have dental malocclusion, thumb sucking habits, bedwetting, night terrors, sleep disordered breathing that they're not even aware that they had, um, a history of chronic ear infections, reflux as a baby, difficulty with breastfeeding as a baby that the mother was told it was them and not the baby and to just use a bottle. So um, these problems manifest over time. Um, One of my favorite stories is about um, a beautiful young woman who was involved in pageants. And um, the, uh, the judges kept talking about her, quote unquote, diction, because that's what they refer to it um, to, that when she spoke, she had a beautiful smile, but she looked like she wasn't moving her mouth. And I don't know how the parents found me, um, but they did. And I was trying to not take the patient because I'm like, you know, I really don't work on vocal coaching. And if there's not an articulation, please just see her for an eval. Well, in the history, I learned that she had a lip tie that was released by an oral surgeon as part of her orthodontics um, as an early teen, but no one checked her for tongue tie. And lo and behold, she was speaking like a ventriloquist because she had a significant restriction and it was being masked by beautifully straight teeth that were corrected cosmetically and didn't fit the profile of asymmetrical facial angles or snoring or speech sound disorder. She never had a history of feeding disorder or anything like that, but she could not grade her jaw um, to coordinate her tongue with the different alveolar or palatal postures. So she had learned to compensate. And she also had very bad TMJ from all the clenching that she was doing. So that's that's a great example of so many compensations that she was able to make mm -hmm. to survive and thrive in her world and do everything she needed to do and even look beautiful, but not have full function. And, you know, you said something about um, common and, you know, a theme that's been running through what I've been saying lately is common and normal are not the same thing. And we have so much, so many common um, aspects of our health that we consider normal because we see them all the time. And that includes, and, you know, I'm almost a little bit afraid of parents hearing all of these lists of the myriad of symptoms that we're associating with oral restrictions, but there are so many things that are associated. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that every time there is one of these symptoms that there's everything else going on, but that list of symptoms that you made, you know, the, um, the orthodontic problems, the TMJ, the sleep apnea, the snoring, all of those things. Yes. And, um, you know, can signify that there might be a tethered oral tissue there. But getting back to common is not normal. We're so used to people needing braces and people needing, um, having sinus problems and 
sleeping with their mouths open and needing to open their mouths to breathe and having difficulty with normal function, including breastfeeding. Like we've even normalized having difficulty breastfeeding, you know, to a point, but, but that's not normal. It's not normal. These are all, no, it's not normal that we need to survive as a species. Right. And then right. the other thing I just wanted to ask you about, cause you said ASHA and not everybody might, might know what ASHA is and the top, the subject matter of oral motor which is a controversial sure. topic. So just, just let us know what that is. ASH is the organization. Okay. ASH is the American Speech and Hearing Association, and they are the governing body that has the bylaws for speech pathologists in the code of ethics and scope of practice. And they govern and award our certificate of clinical competence, which is the gold standard of speech pathology. It's when you see speech therapists or speech language pathologists write CCCSLP after their name that comes from ASHA. And in terms of oral motor, oral motor um, has been around um, since the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. It's an umbrella term that really involves any muscle or motor function of the mouth. So oral motor includes your oral resting posture, it uh, your um, motor development for feeding and speech, your muscle-based skills for feeding and speech, even kissing would be an oral motor skill. Um, so it was always very widely accepted. Um, it just makes sense that the muscles of your mouth control um, feeding and speech and the four phases of swallowing. The first two involve um, the oral motor muscles. And around 2007, there was a professor, Dr. Gregory Loff, who started challenging the um, validity and the um, efficacy of oral motor. And what started happening, and it continues to this day, is the confusion of what oral motor really is. And he made this term called a non-speech oral motor exercise. So as speech pathologists in our collegiate and graduate education, we're trained when we're doing an assessment to look at the, the, the face and the, and the head and the neck and we're trained to look at the nerves and the muscles and function. We look at what's called diodocokinesis and how um, quickly the patient can articulate. And this can be done in a child with a speech problem or an adult that's just had a stroke or a head injury, right? We look at um, oral functions. Can you, you know what's the oral resting posture look like? Is there any drooling? Is there difficulty managing one's own secretions? Um, we look at oral and oral transit phase of um, food preparation for the swallow. And there are placements that are associated with every single speech sound. So to me, it's common sense that is there is a deficit, whether it be a cleft palate or there's a genetic syndrome that's causing a symmetry of the facial angles or too large or too small of a head shape or circumference, if there's low muscle tone or high muscle tone, if there's oral tethering, this could interfere with 
those functions that the mouth is, you know, expected to um, uh, perform, right? right? So how could anyone argue with that? I don't well, know. Again, it goes back out. again. Okay. Yeah, so an outsider's point of view would say that's a level one and two evidence. Right. right. I'll, I'll answer okay. the question for you. Okay. Why is this a problem? It's a problem because when there is not, you know, some researchers want certain kinds of studies, right? Mm-hmm. My field, ASHA, tells us that evidence base is an umbrella and that we have to accept patient feedback, patient values, clinical data, clinical observation, and external evidence, which are the papers, right? Mm-hmm. Very difficult um, to do studies and get the control groups to compare different variations of oral motor therapy with different populations. So oral motor is an umbrella, okay? Muscle-based disorders or, or motor execution disorders fall under that umbrella. Motor planning disorders fall under. Oral facial myofunctional disorders fall under that, right? Many of these patients have comorbidity, Um, of these diagnoses. So they may have motor execution and motor planning. They may have low tone and a tongue tie. Um, So the problem is, how do you get a control group? Right. How do you do no harm? Someone asked the other day, if you had triplets and they were all tethered, what kind of study would you do? And I said, well, I would love to do a study on Baby number one only gets therapy. Baby number two gets therapy and a release. Baby number three only gets a release. But if we know clinically through observation and patient feedback that therapy and a release gives our patients the best outcomes, how do we hold back from one baby the therapy or the other baby the release? Right. It it feels Um, unethical to do these types of studies because we know- There's such strong clinical experiential evidence one way or the other that gets dismissed. Right. So the problem is in oral motor therapy, whether, um, you know, you're, you're conducting um, therapeutic activities and exercises for feeding or for speech or both is that we use a combination of methods. Like I don't, um, try to say when I'm working with a one-year-old with tots that horn blowing in isolation helps with speech. But when I do a series of exercises based on a task analysis, okay, and that's a a Lori Overland buzzword. Mm -hmm. For 35 years, she's been teaching about the task analysis of speech. What are the sensory oral motor skills that we need for speech? And Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson was big on what are the sensory oral motor skills that we need for, um, for Lori was, Sarah was speech. And how do we task analyze that? Well, for example, um, a toddler with a tongue tie 
often has their tongue blowing forward all the time. And you need your tongue to be retracted more than 75% of the time for oral rest posture, for that tongue to get up to the palate, for feeding, for a normalized swallow, and for speech, for all vowels, all palatals, all velars, all lingual alveolars, like T, D, and N, S, and Z, L, R, S, H, C, H, um, J, they all, yeah, they, good. They all need your tongue to be retracted. So I have to put together a series of therapeutic activities. So how do I put that in a study? I once tried to put a poster presentation together for the ASHA convention that showed a correlation between horn blowing and a, a bilabial horn. It was, it's a flute from talk tools, horn number one with PB and M production in a patient with cleft palate. And the, the, you know, research team that looked at my poster said, this is wrong. That's wrong. This wrong. That too many variables. Like, how do I know that the PB and M didn't get better just from me practicing the words over and over again, they had to do the horn by itself with pre and post testing. Wow. I couldn't do it in the same session. Right. And the fact of the matter is, Lisa, I don't know in the IBCLC field, I'm sure it's even worse because um, with IBCLC, it's like an independent certification where with speech pathology, we have to have a master's and we could go on for our doctoral degree in speech path. There is such a low number of researchers and an even lower number of clinical researchers. And a lot of times people get their doctoral degree just because they want to have that doctoral degree and they love education and they want it, you know, they may be in a school or a private practice and they feel it ups the amp of like their credentials, but they never go to university and do research with that degree. So we have 99% clinicians and like 1% in research overall in my field. And then you have to look at that 1%. How many of them are um, interested in tongue tie studies? Right. Because there's so many. Who's going to do the research? So we have the doctors doing the research. And believe me, I love what Zaruzaghi's doing. I love what Richard Baxter's doing. As you know, I did a study with Dr. Baxter. I love what Bobby Gahari is doing. I love what Scott Siegel's doing. I speak to these four. Um, surgeons on a, on a pretty frequent basis, whether it be through social media or emails or texting. However, it's very important, and, and I see they're doing this more and more, that they have IBCLCs, SLPs, mm-hmm. um, certified oral facial myologists, and um, we should talk about that as well, mm-hmm. on research teams, because you asked me what oral motor is, Oral motor is often confused with myofunctional. Did you learn about this in school? I know I didn't. Do you want more confidence with breastfeeding infants? So many of the students of the Professional's Guide to Tongue Tie are speech language pathologists who are looking to gain more knowledge of breastfeeding. Most other courses don't allow SLPs and LCs to learn together. It's different here. You can learn my successful protocols. I've been doing this work for over 10 years, and I share it all in the Professional's Guide to Tongue Tie in the Breastfeeding Infant. www.tongtieexperts.net slash professional course. 
don't miss our half price summer sale. The link with all of the info is in the show notes, but you can just go to www.tongtieexperts.net slash professional course. Can't wait to see you in the group. As, as you're saying this, I'm realizing um, that the research studies that we look to, even if the person is an IBCLC, the person doing research isn't the person that's got the most clinical experience in general, right? So the people that are published in, in journals, in nursing journals, in midwifery journals, and probably in your ASHA journals are the people that are doing research that is often far removed from what we see in real practice and doesn't always, uh, in, can't always be extrapolated extrapolated to information that's going to be helpful for us, even improving our our clinical experience. So it's very hard because yes, I I wish that I had kept track of every patient I've seen in my office and what we did and what their outcomes were. But a clinical provider has no time to do that. And that's not a controlled study anyway. So the research is being done by, um, collegiate education, thinking, and experienced um, providers who aren't on the front end. And I think that that's the case in every field in medicine, you know? And I think it's getting to be a bigger divide as we have more layers of education. Does that make sense? Right. Like it yes. used to be, like maybe 50 years ago, the doctors who were doing research also were practicing physicians in, in any field. I'm not just talking about right. And now it's like, well, those are the researchers and those are the scientists, and these are the doctors who do the clinical work, you know, or so it, it's really, it's really getting to be a bigger divide. And I think that that's part of why um, love, level one in quotes and air quotes is not as important as it used to be for us on the front lines who are seeing outcomes based on what we do and causing less harm by following our clinical instincts based on not only what we're finding, but when we speak to other providers who are from different places and in different situations, and they're finding the exact same outcomes using the same techniques, right? It just makes sense. Right. But that's not research. Right. That's not evidence, quote unquote. Right. Crazy. But yet even in evidence-based medicine, um, you know, I'm the board chair of the Oral Motor Institute. So one of my main advocacy efforts is to look at all of these issues and get a better acceptance of that evidence-based medicine and evidence-based practice that all, all of the components of evidence are equal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another problem, Lisa, is when there are studies and we get really excited about them. Like when Dr. Baxter asked me to be a part of his paper, I was elated. And then we published this paper and it's, you know, one of the first of its kind to look at the patient perceptions of, um, therapy and release in dealing not just with babies and breastfeeding, but speech and sleep and language development and feeding. 
And many people bash the paper, you know, is the journal that we applied to good enough? Right. What level is the study? How many subjects do we have? Is it bias? This is another Mm -hmm. trend, especially in social media, to Mm -hmm. rip apart research papers. Like I wasn't taught that in school. Um, And I know that we have to be good at recognizing the quality of research that, you know, that is important. But if, you know, a a lot of these evidence-based groups in my field, nothing is good enough for that. Right, right. So would I be able to link to that study in the show notes, Robin? Is that publicly available? Yes, yes. Okay, so I'll I'll provide the link to that study. Mm -hmm. I I think that's nice to look at. Um, And we won't reject it. (laughs) It's, um, It's really hard. So you did touch on something that I know you want to um, talk about, and that is the COM, I believe you said, right? Yes. Yes. The COM is um, the uh, Certified Oral Facial Myologist from the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. Um, And the... IOM has been around for 50 years. This is the 51st um, that they've been in existence. And a certified oral facial myologist um, goes through a pretty intense training program. Um, We take a 28-hour plus, now it's up to 40-hour introductory course. And then within a three to five-year period, um, we practice the clinical skills. We take a written test. We have an on-site observation process. Um, we do a query. We do case studies to become certified. And historically, oral facial myofunctional therapy is it falls under that oral motor umbrella mm-hmm. um, in working on the muscles right of the mouth. But it's also a volitional therapy modality. So historically, it's always been for four to eight and up. And mm-hmm. it's interesting because when I first started studying oral facial, my- oral facial myology in the late 90s, I was simultaneously also training and feeding an oral placement therapy. And that's when I first um, started collaborating with Talk Tools, which was then Innovative Therapists International, okay, started in 1995. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, when we talk about myofunctional therapy, we're talking about the patient being an active participant, mm-hmm. understanding the why of the program. So an example of that would be a patient comes to a COM who could be an RDH or an SLP, a registered dental hygienist or a speech pathologist, and say, you know, my four-year-old is still sucking his thumb. And a combination of exercises, we're, you know, we're going to assess and see if there's tethering uh, of oral tissue. We're going to assess and see if there um, are airway issues, congestion, all of those things that we see that are correlated. And then we're going to design a treatment plan, but that child is going to be in the know. What are we here for? We're here to stop sucking our thumb. Here's a sticker chart. We may use different tactile devices like a thumb guard or kinesio tape, and we're going to use a sticker chart. 
and there's going to be behavior modification involved. Or a certified oral facial myologist that's who's a licensed speech pathologist, may, like myself working in the school, may get a six-year-old with a lisp and figure out this isn't a developmental problem. This is because of a tongue tie. And this is because the child has an open mouth posture and large tonsils and adenoids. And I'm going to work with that child on a series of myofunctional exercises that they're going to be looking in a mirror. Maybe I'm going to use some tools, but they are going to have the ability to follow volitional direction. It's put maybe, your tongue in it. You're going to be able to tell them what to do and they can follow right. direction, right? Yeah. This is in contrast to oral motor approaches or oral placement approaches where the child is under four or they have special needs mm -hmm. aren't able to follow the look at me, do what I do, or look at me and say what I say, or watch TV for 30 minutes and concentrate on swallowing your saliva and use this check sheet or um, put a sticker on your chart for every 30 minutes that you don't suck your thumb mm -hmm. to be able to engage in that. Right. A lot of confusion there. I often see in our New York, New Jersey tongue tie group, my three month old just had a tongue tie released. I need a myofunctional yeah. therapist. Yeah. And I always jump in and say, yeah. no, what you truly need is a lactation consultant. If you're breastfeeding, a, a feeding evaluation by a licensed OT or SLP who has specialized training in feeding and tots. Exactly. Because yeah. That's a tender age where Asha tells us on their portal, even that what you learn for feeding in older populations can't be transferred onto infants and babies. Mm -hmm. Facial myofunctional disorders may overlap with dysphagia or swallowing difficulties, but each requires its own specialized training. So a calm in their traditional training is not learning about infant feeding. They're not learning about, we learn about breastfeeding as being the best or overall for healthy mouth development. And RDHs certainly is a part of their clinical role screen from the time the, uh, the first tooth comes in within the six months of the first tooth. And they are going to check for TOTS and they are going to check for any other oral abnormalities like a high and narrow palate or um, late to uh, late teeth eruption. That is definitely their scope of practice. OK, and they're very helpful in getting these referrals out um, to release providers, to uh, feeding therapists, for speech therapy, for lactation consultant. Um, but. Overall, if you have a baby with a breastfeeding issue, they need to see an IBCLC. And then if that IBCLC says, wow, there's tethering and there seems to be low tone and there seems to be issues in this baby's posture and alignment, that IBCLC is going to make an ethically obligated referral to the right professional. Exactly. That's I get babies. Tongue tie team that I talk about all the time. Yes. And, you know, in my professional courses, it's my goal for professionals. And I educate all 
all manner of professionals. You don't have to be an IBCLC to take my course. And we have a lot of SLPs in my course. But the, the most important thing that I try to um, enumerate or elaborate on is that we need to understand each other's roles. That's part of the reason I have you on today, right? right. That we right. can each have an understanding of each other's roles on the team and who is the best professional for each individual baby. Because I may see a baby at 10 o'clock that needs an OT, and then the baby I see at one o'clock needs a chiropractor, right? It depends on what's going on for that baby. I may be able to handle the malfunction for breastfeeding and even for bottle feeding for a particular infant. And then there's other infants that I know that from my assessment, it's beyond my scope and I need an SLP who's properly trained and can help me out or help this, this family out. So knowing the differences and knowing what to look for is, I think, one of the themes of this whole podcast, right? Of like where to go. And you meant, you said RDH, that's um, registered. Registered dental, dental hygienist. Yes. yes. And they can also be trained in oral facial myofunctional therapy. Yeah. Traditionally, that's for four and up. Right, right. You know, we um, at the IAOM support their role very strongly in working with patients with OMDs, and they have wound care in scope of practice. Mm -hmm. Lactation consultants and speech pathologists, like you're a nurse, so it's different for you, but there are IBCLCs that aren't nurses. They're just independently IBCLCs. And that wound care aspect only certain professionals have that in their scope of practice and RDHs have that. Mm-hmm. So many times you may find a release provider has an RDH that they work with to do the pre and post-op stretches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's very individualized and I, I'm um, grateful for your explanation of the different roles so that not only professionals, but parents will know upon hearing this explanation why we feel so strongly that the family is referred to the right person. And, you know, there are a lot of well-meaning providers who take on more than their scope of practice should let them for good intentions, but that's not necessarily the best for, for the family involved. Now, that being said, there are places where people can't access what we have um, you know, we have the ability to access so many different types of providers and so many levels of expertise in the area that we live in. And we're very fortunate. There are some places where that's not exactly the case. And um, I feel for those people, you know, I get emails. I got an email the other day from a, pa- a patient. No, she's a, studying to be an IBCLC and she's in Rwanda. And she said, you know what? There is no other IBCLC here. And I don't even understand if there are body workers that take care of babies. So my heart goes out to those people. You know, I don't want to just flippantly say, like, you have to find this expert and you have to find that expert. Um, it, it depends on where you are, too, actually. Um, but it, it's, it's a complicated issue. And it's a vital issue for those who are 
trying their best to help babies and young children not to compensate so they grow to their full potential and use all of their functions in full potential. Yes. So Robin, is there anything that we didn't mention today that you would like to talk about before we close? Are there any points that you feel are important for my audience to hear about what your role is that we might not have covered? I think that um, it's important to realize a few things. One, that speech language pathologists can work with feeding and speech disorders from birth till death. So, you know, sometimes there's some arguing in social media regarding, you know, speech pathologists who see infants for feeding. You know, it's important to remember that not all feeding issues are related to tots. A baby can have tots and some of the feeding issues can be related to this. But I think the Callaway et al. study was very good in 2019 in showing how lactation consultants recognize the tots and were referring right to the release providers. And the release provider stopped and said, you know what, let's see if all these babies really need a release. Mm -hmm. Speech pathologists went and did full feeding assessments and um, around 35% of them um, were eligible for a release immediately. But the other 65%, 65%, am I doing the math right? Or 40, 45%, right? <laughs> I'm not a mathematician, had other issues. Right. His low tone or other structural anomalies or um, GI issues or right. allergies, you know, a vast. Right. And that that's those babies that have the release and it's not better, which is why I almost, in my practice, and it's evolved over the years. At, and probably was influenced by that study. Right. I, I don't automatically send. First of all, there's other issues to do too. I mean, you're, we're not even talking about the mom's issues, right? Right. So right? that's where I'm lacking. Yeah. I never tried to get involved in that dyad and diagnose the mom. And that's why if I do a full feeding eval, and there's tots present and there's breastfeeding issues, I automatically refer to lactation, but I keep that patient on a monthly check because I want to see what starts happening when the spoon is introduced. I want to give them pre-feeding techniques to work on. Because Lori and I talk about in our tots book, you always have to be one step ahead when you know that a baby is born with tots. Prepare them because- it's not just about the breast. We have to think about the spoon, the cup, the straw, solid speech developing. Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect. We have feeding disorders across the lifespan. Sorry about, uh, I'm not sure what that noise is. Um, <laughs> we have feeding across the lifespan. So we can look at infants, babies, children, and adults and give a differential diagnosis. Are we looking at an oral facial myofunctional disorder where there's interruption in the oral and the oral transit phases? Or do we need a swallow study? Are there GI complications? Are there other issues influencing these feeding problems? We treat picky, um, uh, picky eaters. 
with, um, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Mm-hmm. Also, um, it's not uncommon to see tots in kids with genetic syndromes or in babies who are premature. Mm-hmm. Speech pathologists treat language delays and disorders and articulation, speech sound delays and disorders, and tots can have impact on those areas. Mm -hmm. So finding, I am doing a study with Dr. Zaghi and and, um, some students out at the Breathe Institute in California. And I have two very good friends and colleagues, Dr. Anthony Yan and Dr. Jenny Cho in New York City. Mm-hmm. at our voice specialists, their ENTs. And um, collectively, we are looking at the correlation of professional singers who cannot reach their full vocal range and seeing a correlation as we screen them for tongue tie. That's very vocal hoarseness, right? fluency. Mm-hmm. All that fascia is connected. And when mm-hmm. you think about the tension in the tongue, being connected to the tension in the vocal folds, we're starting to realize that there may be an impact on the voice, both in resonance, like then they sound like this, that air is coming through the nose in raspiness, mm-hmm. much tension or that vocal range. So, so wait, I'm just going to put some humor here. So if I had my tongue tie fixed when I was a baby, maybe I could sing. <laughs> <laughs> Because my kids tell me not, you know, they they shut me up as soon as I try to sing along with the radio. So, Robin, one, you know, I think that um, a foundational point that you just made, and you've made so many points in passing that we just can be taken individually as, you know, vital information to share. But one of the foundational points that you just shared that I um, believe in with all of my heart and soul is that there could be a tongue tie. And just because there's a tongue tie doesn't mean that the problems that they are presenting with are necessarily caused by the tongue tie or just the tongue tie. Right. right. We really need that differential diagnosis. And Lisa, yes. a big you know concern that I have is all of a sudden the mouth specialists are being skipped. So mm-hmm. I started talking about tongue tie Back in the late 80s, I wrote a program um, called uh, Systematic Intervention for Lingual Elevation, a SMILE program. And I redid it in 2018. That was the fourth edition because I always update my products as research evolves and I learn more. And this is a systematic program for correcting lisps and speech sound disorders that are related to oral, motor, and oral facial myofunctional for four and up. And one of the first things that I talk about is the correlation of tongue tie to um, certain speech errors, a list being one of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in that program, people used to think like that I was some kind of heretic when I was associating tongue tie with speech issues and saying, you always have to screen, you always have to evaluate for this. Right. So I, that's how I met Dr. Yan. He was my ENT and I, and I talked him into being my release provider because, you know, there were no, uh, there was no American laser study club and there was, mm-hmm. and you know, no one was talking about light scalpel and CO2 lasers and, 
the, you know, how wonderful these laser procedures were. And Dr. Yan did beautiful releases and still does very similar to the, to the similar of Dr. Um, Zaghi's functional frenuplasty. Mm -hmm. You know, we got into all these conversations about it and we, and we developed a nice working relationship. And now all of a sudden, so many more professionals in my field and your field but in fields that never even touch tongue tie, chiropractors, massage therapists, OTs, PTs, and it's a wonderful thing, but these babies especially are going for releases and they're doing only chiropractic work and they're skipping the feeding therapy and this mm -hmm. is a huge issue. So mm -hmm. they're going to IBCLCs. They're not going, in my opinion, every patient, baby all the way to adulthood, needs a functional assessment before a release. And that needs to be a global assessment of oral function. And with all due respect to chiropractors, I've seen them help babies with tongue tie and the tightness in the body and help support my job, but they're not supposed to replace the oral motor therapy, whether it's the feeding, the, the IBCLC suck training, or the certified oral facial myologists oral myofunctional therapy in a four and up patient that should never be replaced with body work. Right. It's complementary and it right. back to your team. Yes. Let's shout that from the rooftops. And that's a perfect place to end our conversation today. And Robin, hopefully you'll be on again, because I know that we only touched on certain things that we could dive deeper into in the future. Yeah. I really appreciate your time and what's the best way. And I, I'll include all your, your um, connecting places and the studies in the show notes, but for those who are like driving in the car and can't look at the show notes, what's the best way to get in touch with you if they need, if they want more information from you? Well, I made a really easy website. It's www.robinmerkelwalsh.com. And the Talk Tools website is really easy too, www.talktools.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Robin, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Okay. Take care. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Tongue Tie Experts podcast. Check out the show notes for useful links about the topics we discussed and for ways to follow us on social media. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed listening, we'd love it if you'd rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.